Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. Easter time, for thousands of years, they said, one day of Easter is not enough. We need 50 days of feasting and celebration. That's what Easter Tide is. This is what the church calendar celebrates. There's literally a 50-day feast, which I'm very, very into, that's celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, moving us forward towards Pentecost. So know this morning, it's still Easter, my friends. It's still Resurrection Day. I love Eugene Peterson says that Easter is so important, we have 51 other many Easter's as well every single year. So we're still celebrating the resurrection. We're moving forward in that. And we're looking at a story today that kind of comes out of the resurrection as well. It's a story about this journey to a village called Emmaus. And so we're going to jump right into the scriptures together. So look with me on the screen. Luke chapter 24, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, starting in verse 13. Look with me here on the screen. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside him, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, the name of this person and his friend is a guy named Cleopas, which is a Hall of Fame name right there. One that I think you should, if you are interested in having more children, you should consider that because that would be incredible. His friend, and what we know from the scriptures is that they are already disciples of Jesus. Now, we're used to hearing that disciples, there were 12 of them, right? But Throughout the scriptures, there are more than the 12 that are mentioned here in the Gospels, including many women, too. There's in Luke 8, three women mentioned by name. Luke 10, he talks about Jesus sending out 72 disciples. So there was a larger crowd that was following Jesus around as his disciples. And among them were these two men we're reading about in this passage. So it seems pretty clear from the text what we see is that they actually know Jesus. They knew Jesus, and yet they did not, or rather, they could not see him. It says they were kept from recognizing him, meaning it was Jesus' choice in this moment that they did not see him. They, prevent, they were prevented from knowing he was actually there with him. Now, let's unpack that for a minute, because that's a just something, a concept that I think a lot of us could grasp hold of. Two disciples of Jesus who knew him, who are talking about him, and yet they can't see him. I think if we're honest, there are seasons of faith where you and I, we know God, we spend time talking about God, but God seems to be absent from the equation. Have you been there before? Have you had moments or even seasons long where you can speak with knowledge and and excitement about who God is, where you can know him and know that he is there, but in every sense, he just seems absent. These men are speaking about a Jesus that they are talking about in the past tense and not the present tense. They're speaking about a Jesus 
who is no longer present to them, and yet unbeknownst to them, he's right there with them. There's a profound paradox I think we come to see in this little part of this passage that speaks to how God is present even in the absence that we feel. How God is in the seemingly nearness of his absence. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite writers in his book, Spiritual Direction, he writes these words. He says, in prayer and meditation, God's presence is never separated from God's absence. And God's absence is never separated from God's presence in the heart. The presence of God is so much beyond the human experience of being near to another that it quite easily is misperceived as absence. The absence of God, on the other hand, is often so deeply felt that it leads to a new sense of God's presence. That's worth chewing on. That's a quote worth chewing on in a book I highly recommend. One of the axioms we say around here a lot is, God is always present and at work in all things. We do not believe that God is absent from places. We do not believe that we take God to people and to places where he is not because God is already present and already at work in all things, and therefore we go and join the work he's already doing all around us. A big, big paradigm shift. But in knowing that, when it feels like God is absent, we have to deal with that tension of believing he's already present and at work, but everything in our story, everything in our journey pointing to a seeming absence and dealing with those disappointments. That's what these two men are doing. They have brought into this story unmet expectations of what they thought Jesus was going to do, what they thought the story was going to unfold. And as they walk in this disappointment, seemingly well-versed in the Bible, they are disciples of Jesus who are wrestling with disillusion and disappointment and the absence of a God they thought was going to be there with them. Let's keep reading. It says, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know about the things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers, handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now that last phrase is key. We had hoped that he was going to be the one who was going to redeem Israel. Cleopas and his friend had this common misunderstanding that was very, very popular in the time of Jesus, that his aim as Messiah was going to be very different than it actually turned out. There was an expectation that the Messiah would come and overthrow the evil empire around them, the Roman oppressors who occupied the land. If you look back on Israel's history, it's filled with occupation and oppression, and they cried out for their scriptures spoke to this Messiah, this king who would come and put the world to right would make the oppressors be defeated in every single way. He would establish the throne of David and make this nation of Israel great once again. It's a nationalistic vision of Jesus. It's the same vision of Jesus that the crowd on Palm Sunday had when they were waiting
waving their palm branches saying, Hosanna. They thought this Messiah was going to roll in and kick Rome out once and for all. And when that kind of Messiah gets crucified, you can understand why there's disillusionment. You can understand why there is disappointment. They had a vision of the right Jesus, but they had the wrong story. The right Jesus in the wrong story can get us in some bad places, doesn't it? Because if this is the version of the Messiah that they expected to overthrow the powers and principalities that they saw in front of them, the crucifixion is a humiliation. It is a defeat. And then when you're living in that kind of disillusionment, even after the resurrection, it does not change the disappointment and doubt. Look with me again, Luke 24, as we keep reading. It says, and what is more, they're still talking to Jesus, the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Now, think about this. I have somehow missed this detail after studying this God knows how long all my life. These people are walking away disappointed, not because they hadn't heard about the resurrection. They already heard about it. They knew it happened. They had been told by the other disciples that he had been risen from the dead, and they're still walking away in disappointment and in disillusion. They already heard, and yet this wasn't the Jesus they signed up for. Even with this news of resurrection, this is not the Messiah that I thought I was following. They had the right Jesus, but they had the wrong story. And here's what you cannot miss, my friends. This is a doubt and a disappointment and a disillusion that is rooted not in them leaving their religious devotion behind, but in holding tightly to it. They found doubt and disillusion because their religion did not match up with Jesus. Their devotion did not match up with Jesus. This was found not only in misunderstanding who Jesus was, but in, in an entire misunderstanding of what the scriptures actually tell us about who the Messiah was going to be. And we'd be wise, it's very easy to look back and do this, to just scoff at these guys. We'd be wise to, to have some compassion for them in this. To see ourselves in the struggle too. To see the ways in which we have been met with that same kind of disillusionment. As they were growing up in a Jewish culture, they would have heard so many expressions and cries of this Messiah. Look at Daniel chapter 7. Listen to these words. It says, In my vision at night I looked and there was before me one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is as everlasting dominion that will not pass away in his kingdom as one that will never be destroyed. You are growing up in a culture longing for that Messiah. To come, And when that Messiah that you thought was going to be there 
is crucified. That looks nothing like the promises as I thought they were supposed to be. When you see the very powers that you think are going to overthrow, be overthrown, overthrow your leader, you're met with disappointment. And that's why even after the resurrection, even after this incredible news, they are walking away. And yet what we see in the story is something I hope you don't miss as well. And that is that Jesus still walks with them. Jesus knows that they are doubting. Jesus knows that they are disillusioned. Jesus knows they're getting him wrong. And yet intentionally, Jesus pursues them. Intentionally, Jesus walks with them. How easy it is to scoff at people who doubt or are disillusioned or find themselves with the wrong story and dismiss them. Jesus does not. Jesus meets the people in their disillusionment as they walk away from them and speaks into that disappointment. They don't know this yet, but they are beginning the process, mercifully by grace, of unlearning and then relearning everything they thought they knew about Jesus and the Scriptures in light of Him. Look at how the story continues. Luke 24 on the screen, it says, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. When you hear Moses and the prophets in the Gospels, he's talking about the Old Testament. So Jesus on this walk is helping them reinterpret the entire scriptures in light of who he is. It's beautiful. It's something that we have said around here many times and something that I hope you hold on to tightly. Is that is that not only do we see Jesus through the Bible, we see the Bible through Jesus. That is absolutely vital. Jesus is not simply part of the greater biblical story that it is telling. He has become not only the center of the story, but now the lens through which we interpret the scriptures themselves. This could not be more important. Because so many of our problems in our world where the intersection of faith and culture and politics and power happens because we have a commitment to the Bible apart from the commitment to Jesus as the center of the Bible. Let me give you an illustration, an example of this. Two 19th century theologians, preachers, Very famous men, two men. One, a man by the name of James Henry Thornwell. The other, a person you've probably heard of, Frederick Douglass. Thornwell, you may not know his work. He was known as one of the most formidable minds of the 19th century. He was a pastor and professor. There's still a building at the University of South Carolina named after him. He was known to have a great knowledge of the Bible, and yet Thornwell adamantly and consistently used the Bible to defend and promote the practice of slavery. 
In an address that he gave in 1861 to the General Assembly of his denomination, Thornwell, he argues this. He says, in answering this question as a church, let it be distinctly borne in mind that the only rule of judgment is the written word of God. The question then is brought within a narrow compass. Do the scriptures directly or indirectly condemn slavery as a sin? If they do not, the dispute is ended for the church without forfeiting her character. Dare not go beyond them. Here's what he is saying in this. If it is described in the scripture, it must be prescribed in the scripture. Therefore, since there is a description of slavery, that means it's okay. Since the Bible does not have a chapter and verse that says, hey guys, don't do slavery, then surely it's okay, right? Reading through some of his arguments this week was chilling to see how his mind was used to uphold these ideas. Just because, friends, it's described in the scriptures does not mean it's prescribed in the scriptures. Do you understand what I'm saying? Just because there's something in there that's happening does not mean it's something that we should be emulating. There's a lot of jacked up people in the scriptures, my friends. There's not a bunch of heroes. There's some messy weird stuff that goes down in these passages. And just because it's described and not directly dealt with in a very different culture does not mean that God is just simply okay with it. That's not how you interpret the scriptures. That's not how this works. Now, a contemporary of Thornwell, also a man of great biblical knowledge, also a great speaker, Frederick Douglass, what he saw as he wrote in his autobiography and he saw the Christianity of the land, the Christianity of the ones who were owning slaves, who created something called the Slaveholder's Bible where they cut out every reference to freedom and out of bondage. And you can look at it, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., there is a Slaveholder's Bible that they gave to slaves that they took all that stuff out so they would never get the ideas of what freedom might be. But Frederick Douglass saw this. He saw the Bible, and knowing the Bible, he saw the disconnect between the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible that they said they believe in. Here's one of the things he wrote in his autobiography. He says, Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ... I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. If they had microphones back then, he would have dropped them all. That's a word. And what Douglas knew in the same scriptures was that the Bible, apart from the lens of Jesus, is a dangerous weapon in the hands of people. The Bible taken as something we wield for the sake of power and not that we submit to for the sake of love is a weapon in the hands of those who want to seek out to harm their neighbors. And I share all this because 
Many of us who are good and moral and well-meaning, Bible-believing people, uh, we often have the best of intentions with our passions around the Scriptures. We have the right Jesus, but we end up having the wrong story. We're missing the Jesus along the way. He actually tells us this in John 5 as he's speaking to the Pharisees. I love the message translation of this. He says, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life in there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am standing right before you. And you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. In every generation, we are in danger of missing the forest for the trees. In every culture, we're in danger of missing the forest for the trees. On every side, we're in danger of missing the forest for the trees. In danger of weaponizing the Bible against the God in whom it reveals. Of weaponizing the Bible against the ones whose image bear the God revealed within. A big part of being a disciple of Jesus lies with you and I, having a willingness to enter into the same journey that Cleopas and his friend do. Meaning that once we come into discipleship with Jesus, we are now unlearning and relearning everything we thought we knew about God in light of him. Everything we thought we knew about the scriptures in light of him. Now, there are commands in the scriptures that are for our good. It is clear what those commands are, and they are for our life, for our good in every way. But we must beware as we open these pages week in and week out that we do so with humility. And with the lens of Jesus being how we understand not only the story that the scripture is telling, but our own story as well. And like these two disciples, the good news is that that's not a process we go through alone. Jesus, like these two disciples, walks with us. Jesus, like these two disciples, wrestles with us. He teaches us to find our story in light of God's bigger story. It's one of the reasons I love this story of Emmaus in the first place. It it reflects this quiet conversion that many of us went through. There's two main roads mentioned in the the New Testament. Damascus Road and here Emmaus Road. Damascus Road is when Paul, in this huge flash of light, the risen Jesus, knocks him off his high horse, literally, onto the ground, and he's saved. A lot of times in church, we think the only way we have encounters with Jesus, the only thing that changes is Damascus Road experiences. And so what we do is we try to create a lot of big, giant things that you have encounters with God. But most of the time, the real change happens on Emmaus Road. The real change happens as we're walking step by stumbling step with a Jesus that sometimes is hard to see, but nonetheless is with you. A lot of us in this room, I know, have been and are walking that road right now, step by stumbling step, are walking with Jesus in ways we can see and ways we can't see. And the good news for us today is he's still with us as we sang. And the story doesn't even end here. I want to close with how this story closes in Luke 24. It says, as they approached the village, 
to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day's almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. Then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us as he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Gosh, I love this. Jesus becomes real in the breaking of the bread. Jesus becomes real, not in the halls of the temple, but around the dinner table. And one of the beautiful things about the risen Jesus is that one of our unlearning and relearning processes is knowing that God is present in a room like this in a manifest way, but he's also present around the tables as we share meals together. He's also sitting at the table with us, breaking that bread. And unlearning for us often looks like coming to the faith realization that my dinner table, my living room, my job, my commute to drop my kids off at school is holy ground because God walks with me in these places on the Emmaus road that I'm on right now too. So my friends, as we break the bread, as we take the cup today, know and believe that the God you sometimes can't see still walks with you. Know and believe that that unlearning and relearning process doesn't mean that you're out. It means you're on the right track. And know and believe as we humbly open the scriptures today together, as we humbly come before the word of God, we come knowing that the word who became flesh and dwelt among us offers it to us in and through him together. So Jesus, you are the word. Jesus, you are the one who calls us out of trying to find the life we look for by how much we know about the Bible or about our faith when you call us into relationship. So Jesus, for those of us who I know right now probably feel that perceived absence, feel like as they walk along and wrestle with the scriptures, it feels like you're not there. Lord, I just pray for a a knowledge of the burning hearts we just read, that our hearts would burn knowing you're here with us, present in our doubts and disappointments and disillusions. What good news we get to celebrate today in that. That you didn't just rise from the dead and go to heaven and sit distant and far from who we are, but you rose from the dead to be near, to be with us, to be present in what we face, to be present in the roads we walk together. So as we take these elements, we do so in remembrance of you knowing your presence is with us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to celebrate communion together. Take these elements remembering the body and blood of Jesus broken for us. We do this every week, not only as a practice, but as a habit to literally taste and see week in and week out that the Lord is good. The elements on that table back there, there's some up here, there's some in the lobby as well.
here to pray for you. Hannah's going to lead us here as we move forward. Let's respond to what the Lord is speaking to us today.